Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. We have a treat today on the podcast. Lisa Feldman Barrett is with us. She's a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University. She's had appointments with Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital of Psychiatry and Radiology. She has received an NIH Director's Pioneer Reward for her groundbreaking research on emotion in the brain. Uh, she lives in Boston. We are getting the benefit of her research on emotion in the brain in her new book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. This is a super interesting uh, book about, and it's going to shift how we think about emotions. I can promise you it's going to shift how you think about emotions, you know, in the next 25 minutes or so of our conversation. It's well worth the read. Do not be dissuaded by the thickness of the book. Um, it's a lot of pages, but half of it at least is research notes that prove that this is a well-researched book. So, you know, if you cut out the research notes, if you're not reading them like you read the rest of the book, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a book of normal proportions that will take you, you know, a, a few days to, to work through. And it's very well written. So, Lisa, with all of that, thank you so much for coming on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm delighted to be here. and Thank you so much for the kind words about the book. I appreciate it. So let's jump right in because I have a million questions. Um, what is the classical view of emotions? What's the view of emotions that we, are, that we will all find familiar? Yeah, the classical view is the view that really is guided by our own subjective experience, right? So when an emotion happens, it feels like it happens to you, you know, bubbles up and it causes you to do and say things that maybe, you know, are somewhat ill-advised. Somebody yells at me, I yell back at them because they made me angry, and then I feel the anger caused by their yelling at me, and that's how I experience emotion. An, experience, yes. an emotion happens to me. Yes, exactly. The most intense emotions that we have are usually um, accompanied by a lack of feeling of agency, like it's happening to us, not uh, happening because we're doing anything. Uh, and this leads us to believe that emotions are, you know, um, built into the brain, right? That our brains come pre-wired with uh, a handful of emotion circuits that are shared with other animals, that um, when something triggers uh, one of these circuits, so somebody yells at you or looks at you the wrong way or does something that you don't like, it triggers your anger circuit, and this causes you to have a certain feeling. It causes your body to take a certain uh, pattern, you know, maybe your blood pressure increases, your heart rate increases, it causes you to make a, uh, the idea is it causes you to make an expression that everyone around the world can re uh, recognize. So everyone expresses anger in the same way with a scowl, everyone recognizes emotion without, um, recognizes a scowl as, as anger without any training or language or socialization. Um, and this idea, I mean, we're presenting it a little bit in a cartoonish way, but this is the general idea that's been with us since the time of Plato, right? That our emotions are kind of built into some animalistic part of our brain um, uh, that we share with other, other animals um, and that we need our really robust, rational parts of our brain that are uniquely human to regulate our emotions and keep our animal nature, our inner beast in check. Great. 
So, so I've, I, every time you're going to say something, I'm going to have a million questions, but I'm going to try to keep this thing focused. Okay. Um, but, but so, so one question is make a distinction for us, if you can, between feeling something and having an emotion. Wow. Okay. So that's a huge debate scientifically. Um, but here's what I think the science says. Okay. Um, and I'm just going to have to back up and explain one thing to be able to answer your question. Um, but in general, you'll probably find that brevity is not my strong suit. In answer, but... <laughs> I'll keep interrupting and we'll keep shooting. Yeah, and we'll no, do that's, fine. Good. that's good. That's good. So here's the idea that one of your brain's major jobs is to control the systems of your body, to control your heart, your lungs, um, your immune system and so on and so forth. And when your, um, when your heart rate changes, when your breathing changes, when your temperature changes, there are sensations that go along with those changes. Now, for the most part, our brains are wired in a way to make the internal workings of our own bodies kind of like a mystery to us. We are not wired to feel every sensation that comes from a change in heart rate, a change in breathing, a change in blood pressure, a change in temperature, and so on. If we were we would never pay attention to anything else ever again in the world, right? Because, I mean, just think about the last time you had, like, gastric distress or, you know, some GI problem. Like your well, attention- it's actually interesting because I've had a conversation with my brother, who's a, who's a physician and happens to be my physician, that wow. the amount of um, meditation and yoga that I do makes me more sensitive exactly. to these kinds of changes, which – to his chagrin, because I have his cell phone number, makes me a little bit of a hypochondriac because I could say to him, hey, you know, I'm feeling something weird. And, right. and he's like, you know, that's probably gone on for years and you're just noticing it. Noticing it now. So, so exactly. So the thing is, for most people who aren't meditators, um, they don't experience every little ache and tug and what have you. What they experience is what scientists call affect, which are simple feelings of feeling great or feeling terrible, feeling worked up or feeling calm. So these feelings of affect, these simple feelings, um, are uh, with you always, actually. They're with you every waking moment of your life. Um, Sometimes uh, we experience uh, affect as part of an emotion. So when um, Affect is very strong when there's some big change in your body and your brain makes you feel it. You experience that as an emotion and your brain basically is trying to make sense of what those feelings mean in the situation that you're in. But you can also have those feelings when you, for example, have a thought or when you have a perception. Like if you've ever met someone and think, I, that guy is great or um, that guy's an asshole Really what that the sort of the um, the heat behind those perceptions is is affect is these feelings that are coming from your body all the time. Emotions are not feelings. Emotions are the way that your brain makes sense. Interprets of, the feelings. Mm-hmm, well, it yes, interprets is. But the mechanism is actually, um, you know, one where your that your brain uses to interpret all sensations all the time, right? So it's yeah, not so a- it actually sounds like it might be three steps, which is that you have some biological responses, that those biological responses are then 
articulated in your brain as a feeling of something, which then leads to an emotion. It's even more complicated than that. So here's the way it actually works. Your brain reacts to very little, actually. Your brain is wired anatomically uh, to be predictive. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that in each moment, your brain is making a guess using past experience. Your brain is making a guess about what's going to happen next. It's going to guess what sights will you will see, what sounds you'll hear, what um, chemicals you'll smell. And it's also making a guess about what changes are needed in the body, right? So right now to you, it may seem as if you're just listening um, to me talk and reacting to the things that I say. But in fact, your brain has had a lot of experience um, with the sounds of the English language and what they mean, right? So your brain is actually predicting every single word that comes out of my mouth. And if I had said, I would have gone faster if I knew where you were headed with it. Yeah. Well, that's because your brain was predict not predicting so well there, but you got it. You got right. it. And the thing is, imagine how surprised you would have been if I had said out of my ear or out of some other orifice of my body, that right. would have been shocking. Right. So your brain's predicting and it's predicting all the time. And it's not just predicting what you're going to hear and what you're going to see and so on. It's predicting what you're going to feel and what your internal since what the internal systems of your body needs to do. Right. And it, it works that way because it's a, it's metabolically efficient to work that way. So the, the way I just describe it to people is, you know, when someone's playing baseball, right, a pitcher doesn't look at the ball, see the, I mean, sorry, the um, batter doesn't look at the ball, see the pitcher throw it, and then swing. The batter starts to swing before the pitcher, before he can see even where the ball is, right. his brain's guessing where the ball's going to be, and he swings at that. His swing is basically like a guess. Right. That's what makes baseball so interesting, right? It's not. It's it's like a. It's like the the pitcher's trying to psych the batter out. The batter's trying to you know figure out what the pitcher's going to do. It's like a game of deception in a sense. And so the theory of constructed emotion, which is what you're operating from at this point, is that. Your brain is, is ex you are experiencing, your brain is predicting based on what you're experiencing where this might be headed, whether it's a situation or an experience or a conversation or a relationship or where it's kind of headed in the short term. And that based on that prediction is creating this, I'm sure I'm getting this wrong. So I'm just saying it out loud for you to then correct is then creating, um, is constructing an emotional response to, um, what it anticipates is about to happen. Um, based in part on language, based in part on physical, biological reactions, et cetera. Yeah. So basically in this moment right now, if we could just freeze it, right. Based on the, sights and sounds and smells and also the state of your own body your brain is making predictions not one but many predictions simultaneously about what's going to happen next those predictions are the beginning those guesses are the beginning of your experience in the next moment and what your brain your brain kind of works like a scientist it it makes these predictions and then when the information from the world comes in and when information from the body gets to the brain, the brain checks its predictions against the information. And if the information 
confirms the prediction, then the prediction becomes your experience. Um, there's no new information there. So what you, what you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you smell, what you feel is what your brain predicted. However, if there is some difference, maybe your brain didn't predict so well, um, or maybe didn't predict exactly uh, the way that the world uh, evolved essentially in the next moment, your brain has a choice. It can correct itself. So it can um, change its prediction. And um, that we have a fancy name for that in science. We call it learning. Um, or your brain can ignore the information in the world and just go with its prediction. Um, and then we call that denial. And we call that denial. We call that we call that a lot of things. We can call it delusions. We can call it. But you know, in my house, uh, since every you know everyone's read the book, um, we now call it prediction. I mean, they actually call it prediction error. Like, oh, I made a prediction. <laughs> that was a mistake. That was an error of prediction. So give give us an example, if you can, a brief example of like how this might play out, so that we can, because I'm I've read the book and I'm still wrapping my head around this idea of sort of constructed emotion or predictive, like how it's actually playing out. Can you give us an example? Sure. So um, when I first met my husband, um, sometimes when we'd be having a deep, intense conversation, he would scowl. And my uh, guess, right, my brain would... Um, use my past experience in situations like that. I'm dating someone. It's an intense conversation. He scowled. So I, my brain starts to predict what is he going to do next, right? What, am I, what is he going to say next? What's he going to do next? Um, how am I going to feel next? Right. Okay. And so um, maybe he might say something uh, a little challenging or uh, a little dramatic. Actually, not really. He's not a very dramatic person, but little challenging um, or a little direct, let's say. Right. And I might be, so I might be predicting that he's angry and um, he says something very direct and I think, oh, he's really mad. And so I'm going to, my brain, my brain's going to control my body. So my heart might start racing. My blood pressure might start, might go up. I might start sweating. Um, that's, you know, uh, and uh, in fact, um, I'm preparing for a threat that isn't there because, in fact, my husband, when he um, pays a lot of attention and is concentrating super hard, he scowls. He gives a full facial scowl. And what that means for him is that he's listening really a lot, like he's really concentrating. Right. Um, and uh, So that's an example of a prediction error. Here's another example. So hold on, I just want to connect that with emotion. So the prediction error, and mm -hmm. your husband, is, is his name David? Dan. Dan, because mm -hmm. you wrote about him in, in, in the book. And I, mm -hmm. I almost, I wanted to bring up the psychiatrist and I almost felt like I'm violating some confidentiality until I remember that no, I like read book. it in the book, right? So there's no <laughs> violation of confidentiality, but it's why his like, you know, psychiatry meeting lasted one minute because. Right. So the psychiatrist also saw him concentrating really hard. And so as he knit his brown, he was frowning, you know, like a really full facial scowl, which is the stereotype of an anger expression. Right. And I, I call it a stereotype because, you know, when's the last time you saw someone win an Academy Award for scowling when they're angry? People, not a lot of people scowl when they're angry a lot of the time. It's, you know, it, sometimes we do, but 
it's not frequent. We do all kinds of things when we're angry, right? right? We pout when we're angry, cry when we're angry, right. smile when we're angry. We might sit quietly and seethe, you know, and plot the demise of right, our right. anger when we're angry. We do a lot of things in anger. Scowling, the stereotype is not frequent. But this, in the book, I talk about how his therapist said to him, well, you're angry. And he said, no, I'm thinking. And the therapist said, no, you're angry. You just don't know it. And then and, his answer is, well, now I am because I'm not seen and I'm not heard. And you're saying, <laughs> um, so I get, I get the idea that your brain's predicting and not necessarily reacting. The next question is, is the emotion real though? I mean, you're having an emotion based on that prediction. It may be a, a faulty prediction, but, yeah. but it's, it's still, you know, or it might be a prediction error, but, yeah. but it's, well, yep. here's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. It's reasonable for you to ask that question, um, but every sight, every sound, every smell, every taste that you have is built this way. It's not. This is not special. Emotions aren't special. So you could ask. Well, you're seeing my face right now. Is my face real? Well, my face. Your ability to see my face, to see my facial muscle move. What you see is your brain is making predictions. And then the movements from my face as they travel to you, um, uh, you know, they enter your retina, uh, the light enters your retina and it gets to your brain. And then it either confirms the prediction that's already there or it changes it. So and I'm making those predictions based on the last 10 minutes, right? Like based on or based on the last minute or the last 30 seconds. Yeah, sure. I mean, you might, for example, maybe I have some I have some particular habits that other people don't have and you're brains are very quick statistical learners. So yeah, sure. But actually, you know, for example, babies aren't even born with the ability to see a face. They learn to see a face in the first couple of days of life. Right. So your ability to know that the sound is actually coming out of this moving part that move, you know, actually is, it's all predictive. Basically. Right. So, so another, mm -hmm. so, sorry. So why is this important? Which part? Well, the part that says that, you know, when even the title, when you think of how emotions are made, the, the fact that we're shifting from this classical view that emotions happen to you, but that you're, you know, it, it, there's, there's an academic element to this, but, I, but it's, it's much more important than this. And you play this out in the book about um, that we're, it's not just the predictive piece, but it's that we're, const that we're making that, that, you know, ultimately where you're ending up is we are not our emotions, that we're separate from our emotions, that we, that we actually create our emotions. I, get, I would say it like this, that um, you, we have more control over what we feel than probably what we think we do, and based on the classical view. And I'm not saying that we can just snap our fingers and change how we feel uh, as easily as uh, we change our clothes. If that were true, that would be great if that were true. It would also put me out of a job. You know, I, there'd be, no science would be needed anymore. Um, but it's not true. However, we are much in much more control. Um, that our horizon of control is actually much bigger uh, than we might than we might otherwise believe. And so I talk about this in the book. I think the the fact that we are the architects of our experience or an architect of our own experience is important in many domains of life. Um, and, you know, when I first, uh, you know, I've been, I was approached many times to write a book 
uh, and I kept uh, saying no, that I wasn't going to do it. I wanted to sort of stay in the lab and do my do my thing in the lab. And then eventually um, a journalist wanted to write about me and she had to convince her editor that this was important. And she kept asking me, why is it important that we have the wrong ideas about emotion? Why is it important? And I, you know, I, my reaction at first was kind of dismissive, like it's science. It's the brain. We should care. I mean, do we ask physicists why it's important to know that the Higgs boson exists? No, we're just interested in science. We're curious people, you know, but, you know, she kept pressing me about it. And eventually I thought, okay, I'm going to help her out. I'll sit down, think about it for five minutes. And then I, when I really started to think about it, I, I realized actually pick a domain in life where it isn't important. I mean, people are actually being harmed and sometimes they lose their liberty or even their lives because they or someone else is using a set of ideas about emotion that are not scientifically valid and that do not um, match what we know uh, to be the sort of most current scientific understanding of emotion. So, you know, here's an example. Somebody recent, I get a lot of emails from people almost on a daily basis still about the book, you know, telling me um, how uh, they much they enjoyed it or how, you know, how uh, entertaining a read it is, how much they learned about neuroscience or, or about psychology. But they also tell me, they often share stories about how it's changed their life in some really significant way. And someone, you know, just a couple of weeks ago sent me an email telling me how children um, in indigenous peoples, in communities of indigenous people, people had their children removed from their homes by the government um, in Canada because they didn't express affection and love in so-called universal way. And so the assumption was they didn't love their children and so they lost their children. Um, when in fact, you know, there is no universal way um, and that people express love in very different ways. And we're not talking about people who are actively abusive to their kids, right? We're just, what we're talking about here is a cultural bias. Um, you know, and now here's another example. Women, um, part of the classical view, you know, is that women are biologically endowed to be more emotional than men. And women believe this about themselves and men agree. And so as a consequence, um, women actually over the age of 65 are more likely to die from a heart attack than men because they show up at emergency rooms um, feel, and the way they're experiencing their symptoms is as if their physical sensations, they're experiencing them as anxiety and the physicians also perceive those symptoms as anxiety, send the woman home and she dies of a heart attack. And so my, so this is documented in the literature, right? It's been published, but actually my publicist in the UK for this book, this happened to her mother actually. Wow. Um, so I can go on and on and on and give you lots of examples, but it matters in it matters in the law. It right. matters in and so the and, and in all of those stories, what you're describing is what matters most is, or the advice you're giving us in a sense is, um, stay curious about what you see and what it means, and that and 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 how and how you feel about it. I guess yeah, yeah, and and that that you know like don't make assumptions. Um, about, you know, what it means when someone's responding in a certain way. And I guess, you know, by counterpoint, maybe, I don't know what the statistics are. I'm curious if we have them, but like 70, you know, that New York Times 
there was at one point this like New York Times article which showed 20 different faces or something. It was kind of going around virally and it said, you know, can you, you know, can you accurately predict what right. the can person's experiencing? Can yeah. you label, you know, here's a face. Can you label what the person's feeling? And I got like a 20 out of 20 and I was like, yeah, I could like read. And, and so I think like, it's like the, the, it's such a critical point, both to the, to the real issues that you've brought up around women and men and heart attacks and these women in Canada who's having, are having their children taken away. And you talk about other examples, TSA and the assumptions that we make. And, and at the same time, it's not like we're compl- like that, that we're blind to, like we have no ability to read. No, of course those not. So that's the caricature, right? When you say, well, look, you know, you, you don't make one facial expression um, when you express anger, you don't make one facial expression when you express sadness. There's not one expression for fear and so on. The the caricature is to say, oh, okay, you're saying it's all random then. No, I'm not saying it's all random. Right. I'm saying, you know, um, you variability is the norm when it comes to emotion. And this is true in the face and it's true in the body and it's true in the brain. Your brain, your body, your face don't do one thing in anger. They don't do one thing in sadness. They don't do one thing in fear. They do many things. And the, the, the challenge for a human brain is to try to pattern match. It's to try to figure out, well, what does scowling mean or smiling mean in this particular situation? Or what does that ache in your stomach mean? You know, is that ache in your stomach disgust? Is that ache in your stomach longing for someone? Is that ache in your stomach hunger? I mean, it could be any of those Food things. Food poisoning. Sure. It right. could be any of those things. Right. It's not that your brain can't tell the difference between the ache in your stomach that's hunger in a given instance and the ache in your stomach that's longing for someone. It's that the your brain is using that ache and it's creating the rest of the emotion based on its best guess for what that ache meant the last time you were in a situation that was kind of like this one. Got it. And so, so part, so there's two sides to this story. It seems like, I mean, there's a million sides to the story and you're a scientist and academic, so never reduce things to two, but, um, you sort of two, like reduce things to two. It's, right. <laughs> so, so there's sort of two elements to this. One is what I do in relation to you, and the other is what I do in relation to myself. And in relation to you, there's a really important, I don't want to oversimplify this, but there's a really important lesson here around staying curious. And that psychiatrist would still be in a job with Dan if he said, I'm noticing, forget about what I was just about to say, if he said, what are you feeling? Like, what are you feeling right now? Just be curious, ask the question, let the person say, here's what I'm feeling. I think it's really important when you're looking at someone's face or listening to their voice, interacting with them in a business context or any context, frankly, um, to remember that you're guessing. Right. No matter how confident you feel um, that you're reading someone's face the way you would read words on a page, you're not. Actually, you're guessing. You're guessing about what that person feels. Great. And, and, and that feels really important. And the curiosity, like really being curious and really you know, allowing yourself to not know feels really important. And guessing. And- and also, you can also use this about yourself. So, for example, um, sometimes you have physical sensations that feel unpleasant to you just because they're physical, like not because anything is wrong. But right? So being able to make 
an instance of discomfort separate from suffering, right? Right. So for example, just to give you an example, my daughter, since the day she was born, seriously, um, she's now 18, um, every day around 4.30, she becomes really cranky. And this was true when she was born. And, you know, doctors told us, oh, it's colic and she'll grow out of it. Well, actually, every day around 4.30, she probably has a, a drop in glucose, right? She's probably, you know, needs a, a little bit of energy. And um, because her nervous system is a little bit out of whack because she's hungry, you know, she's, she needs glucose, um, she, um, she feels unpleasant. Now, what does she do with that unpleasantness? Well, she could, you know, when she feel the first thing that we do when we feel strongly unpleasant is we don't ask ourselves, am I tired? Am I thirsty? Am I hungry? Um, you know, do I need to step outside to get a breath of fresh air? No, we think, is it because I had an argument with my friend? Is it because my boss didn't do what I wanted him to do? Is it because I didn't get that promotion? Is it because, you know, it's, we try to find, your brain is trying to make sense of your sensations. And so it's looking for um, an answer. Sometimes that answer comes to us, you know, in a split second, your brain makes a guess in a split second. Sometimes it has to kind of, you know, go through a bunch of, uh, consider a bunch of different predictions, but either way, sometimes a physical sensation is just a physical sensation. Well, and I want to, I want to give the reverse example too, because it, the, they both feel very, very true, which is that, you know, I could suddenly feel super, I could be in a conversation with someone that's a difficult conversation and I could feel really hungry and I could just start eating and eating and For eating. Sure. Absolutely. And it's because I'm, I'm translating my physical discomfort or I could be tired and I start eating. Yeah, I'm absolutely. translating my physical discomfort into hunger. And then yeah, and in fact, that is what happens. So for example, when you are, um, when you are uh, dehydrated, you don't feel thirsty. You feel tired. Um, and when you uh, when your nervous system is out of whack, um, uh, in the in the book, I talk about this in terms of like budgeting, basically. Yeah, that your body brain, budgeting. I was going to ask you yeah, to talk about so, that. You know, the way to think about what your brain is doing is sort of the analogy would be like a, the financial office of a company, right? So in a company, there are all these offices and they all have budgets. And then you've got the financial office and it tries to, you know, keep all the budgets for the whole, all the offices in the company balanced. So it's moving around resources, Right. It's sort of taking some resources from here and moving them over here. And it does it, you know, if you're going to spend a lot of money, you need to move the money into the bank account before you spend it so that you don't go into the red. Your budget doesn't go into the red. And your brain works like that with your body. But when your body budget is out of whack, when your brain is running a deficit for your body, so to speak, um, you're going to feel unpleasant. It's going to feel, you're going to feel crappy. And sometimes uh, what will happen if that goes on for too long is uh, your brain will try to reduce its expenditures. So just in the same way that if you were, you know, running a deficit in your bank account, you'd try to spend less, right? That's right. kind of what your brain tries to do. It tries to spend less. What does that mean? Well, it means that it starts to make you feel tired uh, so that you don't move around so much. Um, and uh, because moving around is costly. Um, but so what do we do when, um, when we feel tired? Well, we eat to get more energy. Right. So when your body budget is out of whack, oftentimes what we 
first thing that we think to do is to, to eat because what we experience is fatigue. Um, the other thing that your brain will do to try to cut its You're cost, explaining so much about so many of my bad habits. <laughs> what it <laughs> really because it's like you know you have your go-to and you don't and if you're not if you're wanting yeah. to push yourself through and you're doing more than you can and you're just you know you have a very strong will there's somewhere where it needs to give in and that give yeah, in might be you know to, to overeat or to do whatever yeah and similarly the other thing that happens is that the other place your brain can cut costs is in its own functioning so your brain is actually the most expensive organ that you have in your body it's only it only weighs around three pounds for most of us but it takes up 20 percent of your metabolic budget so that's like a hefty amount and so one thing it can do is it can stop predicting well it can sort of slow maybe make fewer predictions or it can not take in new information as much because that's like really expensive actually learning and so what you end up feeling is kind of like confused and fuzzy headed. And so what do you do? You drink coffee, you right, or t or some like some kind of get ca some caffeine to take to take a stimulant, right? So that you to try to clear your head so that you can keep working. So to some extent, because we don't have we don't have these little monitors that we can wear that say you know eat a cup and a half of broccoli because you need some potassium or you know, drink to, to uh, drink 24 ounces of water because, you know, you, you're dehydrated. No, we, what we have, the only thing we have is really affect these kind of feelings that we get when, when our body budget's kind of out of whack. And then we kind of, the brain kind of guesses, well, what does it mean? So what do I need to do? Right. And it's often guesses aren't so good. And if you think about it, we live in a, in an ecosystem that's designed to throw our body budgets out of whack. We don't sleep enough. We often don't exercise enough. We often don't eat healthful things. And so we have an obesity epidemic in part. I mean, there's a lot of pseudo foods around that aren't healthy and so on. But also it's because people's body budgets are out of whack um, and they are eating um, because they feel tired. Uh, and, you know, we could talk about the opiate uh, epidemic this way. We can talk about, I mean, there are many, many things that we can talk about like this that all stem from, I'm not saying only from uh, a body budget that's out of whack, but certainly that's certainly part of it. So on the one hand, we're saying, on the one side of this coin, we're saying be curious about what's going on for other people um, and don't make assumptions. You're saying the same thing about yourself, which I guess is where meditation comes in. And it's where, you know, creating, it's where you start to talk about Buddhism and, and the idea that if you could, if you could quiet yourself enough to be able to see what's going on for you physically and then understand the impact and I guess maybe translate it in a way so that, and this is where you call it the theory of constructed emotion, where you're, you, you can actually you know, we do this anyway, we construct emotion out of sensation, but we're, and out of predicted sensation or actual sensation based on yeah. predictive. But, but now I, th I think what I'm understanding you to say is that um, take a moment to actually be curious about what's going on for you so that you could actually feel it. And then, and then what, and then be more sort of thoughtful or accurate about what it is that you're feeling and what it's based on. I wouldn't say more accurate, but maybe that's the right thing to say. I would say um, cultivate your options. So um, mindfulness meditation does a couple of things, right? The first thing that it lets you do is it lets you, it teaches you to deconstruct your, the experience that your brain constructs so automatically 
mindfulness teaches your brain to also deconstruct at will. So the analogy that I give to people who don't, don't meditate, don't do mindfulness meditation is to say, you know, when you learn to paint, um, uh, a three-dimensional object, uh, on a two-dimensional canvas, so, you know, like, let's say this pencil, right, um, it's three dimensions, but you want to render it on a two-dimensional object, a, a canvas, what you learn to do is to take the object and to deconstruct it into pieces of light. And if you deconstruct, so if you were just to take a pencil and try to paint it on a two-dimensional canvas, it would look like a crappy-looking rendering of a pencil. If you, however, deconstruct the pencil into pieces of light, so your brain is taking pieces of light and predictively constructing this into a pencil. If you work hard, you can start to see pieces of light, pieces of blue, pieces of brown, pieces of gray, and you paint the pieces of light on the canvas, you usually will get a pretty decent looking three-dimensional object. Unless you're me, in which case you get a shitty looking three-dimensional object, but a two-dimensional, you know, three-dimensional object, which on two dimensions. But, but, um, but, you know, you can teach yourself to, to um, deconstruct any object into pieces of light. Or if you talk to a musician who has a lot of experience, um, they can actually take a symphony and they can deconstruct the sounds of the symphony into individual instruments, right? That takes a lot of training. And so similarly, um, one of the things mindfulness meditation does is it teaches you to deconstruct any feeling into sensations. And that exercise in and of itself gives you more flexibility and more options um, about what to feel. The other thing mindfulness does, so, you know, if you, you can sort of think of it, you have like three domains of ingredients in emotion. You have your past experience, which your brain uses predictively. You have what's going on inside your own body and what's going on in the world. Okay. And you can change any of those and change what you feel. Now changing, for example, what's going on in the world, you can actually literally pick yourself up and move to a different context, or you can be mindful. If you're mindful, then you're figuratively changing the context because now you're starting to pay attention to things in the world that you hadn't paid attention to before and they become opportunities for new predictions. So could you give an example to that? Yes. So one of the examples that I use in the book is uh, that one day when I was uh, on vacation with my family um, we were at the beach and I, uh, we were walking, we went to dinner and we were, uh, walking back to our, the house we were renting. And I, for the first time paid attention to the sound. There was like a symphony of crickets outside in the evening. Now, you know, I was in my mid forties when this happened. So clearly I've been hearing crickets my whole life, but in this moment, I paid attention to something that had always been there, but I had been ignoring. And it was really a dramatic moment for me because it, for a moment, allowed me to feel very small and insignificant in a good way, right? That whatever I was concerned about in that moment evaporated 
um, because I was in, enraptured by the um, by the power of nature, let's say. And then I started to every night listen for the crickets. Um, and in fact, um, for me, it's a it's a wonderful feeling. The first time in 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 Boston, in, you know, crickets you can usually hear them late July, early August. Um, the first time I hear them at night after a long, you know, after a long winter is a real, um, you know, I feel a mixture of kind of awe and gratitude and, and kind of jubilation. And another example of this sort of thing would be, you know, looking at the sky or looking at the trees or for me, for example, um, looking at a, a weed popping up through, uh, the crack of a sidewalk can, um, just paying attention to something that you would normally just walk by and not even notice can change your, it can change your whole body state. It can, doesn't just change your frame of mind. It changes because it's changing your predictions. It's ch actually changing the physical state of your body. Um, it's a great way to regulate. So predictions are to some extent under the automatic control of the situation that you're in because they help the situation helps to, automatically prompt the next set of predictions in your brain. So if you learn to look at the world differently, then your brain learns new information so that it can predict differently. Now I'm, I, I'm with you a hundred percent. And I, um, and I just heard the other day, a cricket in New York city and, <laughs> and it was such a shock because it's not a place that I often hear crickets. Um, when I think of mindfulness, I think of it being absolutely and totally in the present moment, like as much as possible in the present moment. When you say predictive, um, I'm, I'm well, what you're doing is you're suspending your predictions. So, you're, and you're, so I'm not talking about I where I use mindful in two ways there. So that that was good of you to, to call me on that. So mindfulness meditation means you're definitely in the present and you're, you're actually, when you're doing mindfulness meditation, you're trying to suspend predictions, really just trying to feel the sensations as they are. Right. Right. Um, but when you're mindful in your life, what that means, so the word mindful gets used in two ways of culture. What that means is paying attention to small details in the present moment. So you're not, when I'm, in the middle of my day, I don't try to deconstruct my experiences into my physical sensations. That actually takes a lot of effort. Um, even for monks who've been, you know, meditating for a long time, it takes some effort. Um, but you can be in the present moment by noticing small things in your surroundings and not letting your mind, your, your, your brain doesn't just predict the next moment, right? It doesn't just use your past to make a prediction about your immediate future, which becomes your present. Your brain can predict a week from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, you know, scientists call this mental time travel. So we have, you know, mental time travel, our ability to project ourselves into the future or into the past is considered to be one of um, our great superpowers as a species, right? But it also is one of our great downfalls because it's like super hard to keep your mind in the present. Right. Um, and that's because of your brain's like, awesome predictive power, sometimes you have to try to like turn down the dial, so to speak. And so trying to, you know, keep 
uh, at bay the predictions of the far future so that you can focus on, you know, what's going to happen or what you're going to see or experience in the next second, you know, is challenging enough. And what you're saying is in terms of regulating your state, that if you're paying attention to something that gives you a positive physical state, you know, if you're paying attention to, you know, the sounds of crickets, which then your experience will be more positive because the predictive nature of your brain is going to cling on to what you just experienced and project it into the future, which will be the pleasantness of listening to the crickets. That's right. So I think the important thing to understand is that, you know, we all think that brains are for thinking or feeling or seeing like all these things that we do that are so sophisticated, but you know, at its basis, your brain is for controlling your body and predictions are foremost for controlling your body so that your body budget is uh, maintained, right? That your expenditures are balanced with your revenues, your rewards. Um, and so that your, your brain has enough resources to kind of make your body move around. And that's really at their basis, one of the things that predictions are for. So, um, so predictions at their basis control your body and therefore they control the feelings that come from your body the um the changes in in your heart and your lungs and so on but also the feelings that come from those the sensations that come from those and the and the feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness and and arousal and so on that come from those predictions control those things they also control how you make sense of those things they control your actions um and uh, so when you willfully, with a lot of effort, focus your attention on something new, something different, something small maybe, you are, see, your, your brain has an opportunity to learn, to update its predictions um, so that it can predict differently in the future. And just like with driving, right, something that starts off being super effortful, but then eventually, if you do it enough, becomes really automatic, the same is also true with predictions. So if you effortfully, effortfully pay attention to that um, weed uh, in the sidewalk, um, you will effortfully make an instance of awe and change your body. Your body will change accordingly. But if you do it enough, you can do it pretty automatically. And, and one of the things it, that helps you to do it, as, as I've you know, learned from you, is learning a broader vocabulary for our emotions. Right. So it turns out that also one of the things that helps us predict really uh, differently or well is to have a vocabulary of words. Um, uh, and the more words you know about emotion, the better off you are at making very precise and detailed predictions. So the example would be this, that um, it's always easier to make an example that's not emotional. But, uh, you know, so I'm going to make an example of the one I use in the book, which is if I say to you, Peter, I'm going to have pizza for dinner, the word pizza evokes in your brain a whole set of predictions of features like um, it has sauce, it has cheese, it's, you know, got tomato sauce, maybe, but maybe not. Um, but, you know, your brain's making a whole set of predictions with one word from me, one word. If I didn't have that word, I'd have to spend like 10 minutes describing to you using analogies what a, what a pizza is. And I can do that. And even if you didn't know what a pizza was, you could, your, your brain could use something called conceptual combination, which means it could just take its past experiences of stuff it does know 
and combine it in lots of new ways to understand what a pizza is, even if you don't um, have the word for it. Right. You could make a concept for it like in the moment on the fly. But it's really effortful to do it. Um, it's much more efficient if you have a single word that evokes. Now, you know, I could say to you, I'm having pizza for dinner. And you would probably think of, you know, the product we live in. I live in Boston. I don't live in Chicago. So you're probably thinking, well, it's thin crust and it probably has, um, you know, tomato sauce and cheese. But I could live in, if I lived in Chicago, it would be a deep dish pizza. And if maybe if I, uh, maybe I might not be having uh, any sauce on it. it, might be a white pizza, or maybe I'm vegan and so there'll be no cheese. You know, your brain has an opportunity in conversation with me to adjust right. its prediction so that you and I are understanding each other. I'll say some words, they evoke some predictions in you, they become your experience, you say some words, I have a set of predictions, um, and then I have an experience and back and forth and back and forth so that we have some conceptual synchrony going on, right? Um, that's much easier to do with words. If we have single words for things, like I don't have to describe to you in 25 or 50 words why a, uh, how a Boston pizza is different from a Chicago pizza. Well, and it's why, you know, that same predictive element is why I could say to my 10-year-old son, you know, we're going to go, I mean, this is not an exact situation, but, you know, we're going to go play golf and he'll get excited and then I'll say, we have a lesson for you and he'll get less excited because he's beginning to predict what is that experience going to yeah, look exactly. and feel like. And so, and so if, if, um, if we're people who where um, irritation and frustration and anger and rage all mean something different, then if I say to you, somebody who just walked into my lab and that irritated me because I just asked them to stay quiet because my uh, I couldn't do this interview in my office because there's construction. That's a irritation is a has a set of features and you know irritation isn't one thing. There's a whole population of irritations that I might feel that you may feel. But, you know, we probably could guess pretty well. But if, if all of those words, irritation, frustration, anger, all mean the same thing, then it's not very precise when I say irritation. It, it, there's, um, there's a lot of slippage, actually. Well, that and, that's, and that's important for me and for you. So meaning in your description to me, I'm not going to be able to – if you just say I was angry, I don't know if that's rage or irritation or frustrated or annoyed or what. But it's also useful for you because – to interpret your just being angry is going to create a certain kind of dynamic. Well, it's not just interpretation. It's that my brain needs to predict what my body is going to do next. Am I going to, how am I going to deal with the person who just walked in and made noise? Um, that, that's different if I'm irritated. If, if anger and irritation and rage are all different things, then, you know, and irritation might isn't one thing. It's a bunch of things. So maybe I'll speak to the person afterwards. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll, you know, like there are many things I could do. But imagine a situation where like anger, sadness and fear and disgust and um, shame and guilt are all synonyms for I feel crappy. That doesn't allow my brain to make very specific predictions about my actions. Um, it doesn't allow you uh, to know you know, with any kind of precision how I'm feeling. Um, and so, you know, being, having a rich vocabulary 
allows you to be what we call um, emotionally granular, which just means that your brain can make very specific instances that are much more um, efficient um, and well, well tailored to the situation. Um, so you don't fly off the handle when someone makes noise. You might just, you know, mention something in passing, like, hey, next time, read the sign. <laughs> um, you know, uh, or I might, or, you know, maybe uh, you make a joke instead of, you know, um, uh, being really offended and angry. And I guess having those distinctions helps you to modulate your reaction in a way that keeps your body budget and balance. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If you're mispredicting all the time, that is, uh, that's very metabolically costly for you. And, um, you can, you can sustain that for a certain period of time, right? Like you, you might decide to go on a trip somewhere, um, to a novel place, place you've never been before. Um, because that's arousing and fun. Um, it's also really costly metabolically, but you can sustain that for a little while. Brains and bodies can, can, you know, our brains and bodies kind of evolved to periodically be out of balance. We kind of need to be out of balance occasionally to keep everything kind of working and, and kind of healthy. It's prolonged, um, sustained uh, running a deficit, which is, which is really problematic because eventually your uh, brain, as I said, will start to try to save. It'll try to reduce its costs by making you fatigued and um, by um, reducing your, um, the likelihood that you'll move around, that you'll learn anything new. And eventually, your immune system will get involved because your brain will start to believe that your body is sick. Um, and then you do become sick. Uh, um, you know, what you become sick with is another matter, but the fact is that... Um, you know, diabetes, heart disease, some kinds of cancers, um, uh, you know, are all metabolic illnesses um, at their root. Depression is a metabolic illness. They're all metabolic illnesses. They're also all illnesses that um, where, where your immune system uh, get, is involved. In fact, some people think cognitive aging, like just the normal aging of your brain that leads to normal decrements in memory just come from uh, the wear and tear uh, on your brain from um, managing a, a, an unbalanced body budget. And, and some of your recommendations for that are slow down, make sure that you're eating well, make sure that you're sleeping well. You know, some, we, in your chapter on mastering emotions, the, the sort of focus on creating, a, 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 you know, increasing your body budget both by being more discerning about what's going on in your emotional life and creating capacity in your physical life to be able to absorb that. Yeah, it really is about creating capacity. So um, sometimes I'll say to people, you know, like I know, I know, I know I sound like a nagging mother when I say this, but I'm actually speaking to you as a neuroscientist. Like if there is a single thing that you could do um, that would make your emotional life better, it would be to sleep enough. Uh, you know, there is a, there's wonderful research, actually a brand new book out, um, about sleep. Um, and, um, uh, sleep is really important. It's really important for keeping your body budget balance. And, uh, you know, if anything which makes it harder to keep that body budget in balance, um, 
will lead to more negative, unpleasant feelings, which is an ingredient for making negative emotions. So you want to reduce, <laughs> you want to reduce the negative emotions you feel. One thing you can do is just change the physical state of your body and try to do your best to keep yourself healthy. Um, it's not the only way to, uh, to, to, to change your emotional life, but it's certainly a, a pretty potent way. And that's why people take medication, right? I mean, that's what partly what medication does. That's why people take opiates. They may not start, they may start taking opiates for pain, um, but they maintain taking opiates because it reduces the distress that's associated with a chronically, uh, uh, a body budget that's chronically imbalanced and, and running a deficit. So there's a lot of lessons in this conversation and in this book for me personally and for, for everybody who's listening, just in terms of, you know, certainly people who push themselves and, and you know, creating some more of that spaciousness so that we, you know, we reduce the deficit in our, in our body budgets and, and increase our ability to experience more granularity in the emotions uh, that we have. Lisa Feldman Barrett. The book is How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Um, our conversation just touched the surface of what is a very, very interesting and useful book that I highly suggest you go out there and get. And Lisa, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.